Now it's time for the Disney View podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his grand circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. Well, as luck would have it, I happen to be in the Orlando area around the time that Star Wars Galaxy's Edge opened to annual pass holder previews. And it's funny because I had heard that they were going to be reaching out to some of the annual pass holders and offering an opportunity to come and visit the park and check out uh, Galaxy's Edge. And I never got the communication. And because of the fact I didn't know I was going to be in the Orlando area uh, at that time, I actually didn't even reach out myself to try and request any time because I figured I would do that if I knew I was going to had an opportunity to be up there. But it didn't work out that way for me that I knew I was going to be there. So I happened to be there when it uh, when it opened. And I made some queries to see if maybe I could get in to see the uh, Galaxy's Edge preview, but wasn't successful. They'd already filled up all the spots that they had planned for it. Now, maybe I could have pushed a little harder, but I didn't, so I kind of let it go. I was only there for a few hours where I had some free time and I could have gone in, so it was going to be too complicated to work out anyway. But uh, did get a chance to talk to a couple of people um, about it and, uh, you know, get their their first impressions. And the first impressions are very similar to the one at Disneyland in terms of, you know, kind of immersive, interesting, fun, looks like it's a really neat place to be, uh, you know, but on the other hand, it's sort of that, yeah, there's one attraction in a lot of shops. So sort of that coming and going kind of thing. Now, the other thing I heard from people who had been at both uh, Disneyland and Disney World is that this one is a little bit more, uh, has a little more richness to it at Disney World in the studios. That it's just got a little bit more going on. It's a little bit more um, interactive and fun in a way because it's just, a, it's, it's a bigger property, right? So it's a little more well-themed and kind of suited in there and it, it fits pretty well. People were flabbergasted by the way it looked, and I get that. I mean, I've seen some of the videos already, and uh, certainly it looks very, uh, has a certain beauty to it as you walk in, and uh, really looks pretty cool. Um, I just find it interesting. You know, now that it's open and it's open to the to the previews, you know, I want to see what people are coming back with, if it's a similar sort of feedback that they were getting at Disneyland. And overall, I would say yes, you know, somewhat of a mixed bag, very fun and very uh, interactive and that sort of thing. And there's, you know, it's got that Star Wars you know, feel to it. It's that draw. Uh, so it feels kind of like you're there, the Millennium Falcon and everything. It's it's sort of there. So interesting. And I, I want to hear more from people as they go in. Uh, I want to see what it looks like, what crowds look like as they start to plan it up and allow for uh, everyday guests to come in rather than just this preview to, uh, to see what people think about it. So I'll keep an eye on that. Now, interestingly, uh, one of the things that occurred to me the other day, I was kind of sitting there thinking about why is it that Disney doesn't have the original trilogy characters or even the characters from the prequels uh, really engaged in the whole Star Wars land. And it started to, started to sink in a little bit. And I have to be honest, I came up with this theory before I saw any of the other internet 
uh, based theories that are similar. So, you know, this was my own thinking and I just happen to have it sort of corroborated by other people. So just sort of a uh, kind of a, a starting point. Um, this was my own thought on this. The thing I started thinking about was when uh, George Lucas first created the idea for Star Wars, he pitched it to um, 20th Century Fox. I think he had pitched it somewhere else first, but he got it to 20th Century Fox and they weren't sure how it was going to work out. So he reduced his fees and everything in exchange for some of the merchandising and uh, took away some money uh, based on the toy sales and so forth and really did phenomenally well there. But George Lucas owns a lot of the properties more personally in the way that he set up his contracts with uh, 20th Century Fox. So when there was uh, the idea of creating Star Tours, George Lucas lu licensed it through Lucasfilm to be able to create Star Tours in both Disneyland and Disney World that had uh, the intriguing idea of flying on a star speeder uh, with C-3PO and some other characters. And you, you know, you're there and you've got this, this interactive and immersive thing with this motion simulator. So kind of cool, you know, he licensed it out that way. And then when they came up with the ideas for the Star Wars weekend at uh, the Walt Disney World Resort, it's sort of an interesting story that goes along with that. Now, I do not know all the details. I'll be perfectly honest. I only know pieces to the story that there was a licensing deal that went on. And George Lucas had licensed out the ability to have Darth Vader and have Darth Maul and have other characters from the original trilogy on hand to sign autographs and take pictures with guests. So there was a lot of different characters with Luke and Leia and uh, I think Han Solo came through at some points, you know, things like that, where he had this, um, he had all these characters that he had, he had created that were there on display. And there was some sort of a licensing deal that went on. Then you had the, uh, the 501st Infantry, which is this uh, fan-created um, group that actually does some uh, basically cosplay where they dress up in various uh, Sith costumes and they go through and they were invited to come to the parks or allowed to come to the parks. It was sort of this cooperative agreement and they could represent any characters that they wanted to in full costume. And it was a, it was a sort of an agreement they had. It was, I, I'm not sure exactly how it worked. It was, it was interesting. I had um, one, the guy who was the, uh, the commander of the Florida garrison of the 501st on a podcast. And he was, um, he had told me up front that he couldn't give me all the details on everything. There were some things that were licensing deals and other things that he couldn't talk about. But he gave me the general gist of it, that they were allowed to come to Disney and do the cosplay. And, uh, you know, they would come there and they would have a lot of fun. And it was a really interesting and interactive thing. So you had all these people dressed as characters from Star Wars. And there's also the, um, I think it's the light side, the Jedi Order or something like that. Very similar to the 501st, but they represent the, uh, the rebellion side and the Jedi side. And they would come dressed as well. So they would be in Jedi robes and so forth. And they would be, represent characters from the Star Wars universe, not specific characters. That was the kind of the key point to that. They had to be sort of gener generic characters or characters that you wouldn't have seen there that weren't specific to any of the characters that you would have had in the original trilogy. So nobody could come dressed as Luke Skywalker, but they could be his cousin, you know, or some other Jedi. So that's kind of the way they worked it out. And so you had this mix of Disney characters, people, you know, people that were licensed from Lucasfilm uh, that came and dressed up and did autographs. And then you had the uh, 501st and the Jedi Order and then you also were allowed to come and dressed in costume as a guest. And so there were guests that came in and they were fantastically cosplayed out. And, you know, you didn't know sometimes that they were uh, characters, uh, that they weren't part of the part of what was there. It was just sort of they were guests coming in and having fun. And it was really kind of a neat mix of things that happened there because you had this 
amalgamation of many Star Wars universes. You know, so you had some people that were uh, cast members who were there on the, or I guess they were maybe they were uh, some sort of. Uh, people who were uh, who were contracted out to do the work. Maybe they weren't cast members. Maybe they were some sort of uh, vendor coming in to do it. But anyway, they were there and they were acting in the role of like stormtroopers and Darth Vader and so forth. And they would do different things. Then you had these other stormtroopers that would come through in the parade and they would interact a little bit. You know, they had to leave the park. They could basically be there a little bit before the parade and a little after the parade, but that was it. Um, then you had some, in costume anyway, then you had some guests who came in dressed in costume. And it was just an interesting mix of people that were there. And it was really kind of fun and it made it fun and interactive and it really was pretty cool. But then you flash forward to what they're doing with Galaxy's Edge and you realize that it's really just characters from episode seven and eight and presumably nine. And it's a very different sort of experience. And I'm not sure what happened, but my best guess is based on the fact that George Lucas had the licensing deal to do all the toys and merchandise and whatever, that George Lucas might own some portion of the characters and wasn't willing to license them to Disney as a part of this relationship. So remember that the, the entirety of the purchase of the Star Wars universe was very complicated. Uh, Disney purchased Lucasfilm, they purchased the rights to all the Star Wars movies, except for <laughs> episode four, um, the distribution rights for episode four from uh, 20th Century Fox. Very interesting thing that happened there. So along the way, Lucasfilm had kind of spread out some of the wealth a little bit. In the original deal he did with 20th Century Fox, they owned the distribution rights to it, lock, stock, and barrel, while Lucasfilm owned everything else. They owned the characters, they owned all the five, six, and one, two, and three, but they didn't own the distribution rights to four. So when Disney got a hold of all of it, they got Lucasfilm, they got all the characters, they got all the stuff, but they didn't have the distribution rights to episode four. So they had to go back when they purchased 20th Century Fox, they got the distribution rights to it. So now they can distribute all of the nine uh, episodes if they want to. So kind of interesting the way that played out that it didn't quite, they didn't quite get everything because it was very uh, complicated in the relationship there. So my presumption is that somehow it's complicated too with George Lucas owning the rights to the characters like Han Solo and Darth Vader and Darth Maul and so forth, because he had some uh, financial stake in them. And that wasn't part of what he sold. Now, there's no publicly available documents that show that that's what happened because we don't know exactly what the purchase of Lucasfilm looked like. We only know that there's some oddities in it, that there were some caveats and some other things within the, the uh, uh, purchase. And that's based on anecdotal evidence and some of the comments that both Disney and George Lucas made early on. But I find it really interesting that there are no characters from episodes one through six in the, the Galaxy's Edge, in spite of the fact that they had Mark Hamill and they had uh, Harrison Ford and they had some other people, I think Billy D. Williams was there too, at the introduction of uh, the opening of uh, the Galaxy's Edge that was in Disneyland. So kind of interesting that they didn't, they were there, but yet they, weren't they aren't represented beyond just being there for the opening. So I'm wondering if there's more going on there than meets the eye. Now, this could be just strictly a financial move by Disney that they don't want to have to pay royalties to have these, these characters there. Who knows? Um, I think it's also now that Disney owns it, they want to control the property a little bit more when they were licensing it with George Lucas and had Star Wars weekends going on. There was a little bit more um, loosey-goosey attitude toward who could come in, in costume and who was there and what they were doing. So I think there was a little bit um, 
less structure around it. But now that Disney owns it, they want to merchandise it fully themselves and they want to own all the properties. So they don't want anyone else representing anything. So that's my take on it. I, <clears throat> I have no way of knowing that for sure. Um, I'm only guessing at it. And I have, like I said, I have heard other people corroborate a similar story based on their own little bit of research. Um, it's just really interesting that it kind of works out like this. And I think there's more to it and more with the licensing that George Lucas didn't sell some portion of what he owned when he sold Lucasfilm because they were his instead of Lucasfilm's, right? Sort of his personally. And it, this is where the whole movie industry gets very ridiculously complicated. If you stop and think about it, uh, Disney owned ABC and they distributed the TV show Modern Family through ABC. But they didn't own the production company that created Modern Family. And when they bought 20th Century Fox, now they own the production company that creates that show. So now they own it from beginning to end, right? So it's kind of interesting how these things work because the, the relationships and who owns what and who has a financial stake in what in the, in the film industry is really complicated, much, much more complicated than I think most of us really know. I've known some people who were in the... Uh, entertainment business in the legal sense. And uh, they kind of explained to me over the years that, you know, it's just, it's, it's ridiculously complicated. There's a lot of lawyers involved. There's a lot of contracts involved. There's a lot of legalese involved. There's no clear cut, I own this, they own that. It's sort of this wild, you know, wild west kind of thing going on. Even if you look back at the, uh, the way that Walt Disney had created Mortimer Mouse in the first place, and he was working for, I guess it was Warner Brothers, I can't remember now, um, at the time. And they claimed that they owned it and they took it from him. So he, he cre created Mickey Mouse as a result of that. And through very many sales and purchases and acquisitions and everything else, Mortimer Mouse was finally owned by, uh, who was it owned by? Uh, NBC Universal, I think, at the time. Um, and uh, to be able to get him back, they had to make some other trade to be able to do something else. And it was just really complicated. And I have that in a previous podcast. You can go look for it in the archives. I describe it out in detail. I don't remember the, ex the specifics of it off the top of my head. But the principle was that in order, oh yeah, it was owned by NBC Universal. That's right. Because they traded Al Michaels for him basically to get him. Uh, Al Michaels was working for ABC and NBC wanted him to do Sunday Night Football. And they essentially traded Mortimer Mouse back to get him. I remember. So, uh, you know, it's a ridiculously complicated thing that changed hands many times and there were many ownership pieces to it. And they had to figure out who actually owned Mortimer to be able to get him back. And, it, you know, whether they were going to get him back or not was always debatable because, you know, it's one of those things that was just nobody knew exactly who the ownership stake was. Maybe they did, but it was kind of complicated to, to parse through it. So it's entirely possible that George Lucas himself owns some of the rights to this and hasn't decided to license them or Disney is being protective in some way and doesn't want to license them. Who knows? But there's something more going on. Otherwise, they would have, I'm sure, they would have at least put those characters somewhere and made them available. Because you, how, do you, how do you shut out a fan base from episodes one through six and just focus on seven through nine, the stuff that you've created that you own 100%? So kind of funny. So interesting. And just, just my two cents on that whole story. Um, I found it kind of interesting as I was, as I was, I was thinking about it. I was like, oh yeah, look at that. I, I, think, I think there's probably some, some nugget in there. I'm not 100% sure. It's just sort of my speculation based on some of the things I've read, seen, and heard that perhaps uh, there's more at stake than just deciding not to put them there, that there's an ownership issue and you know, who, who owns it and where they go is still somewhat debatable. So anyway, that was my story about uh, Galaxy's Edge and George Lucas and the, and the original characters. 
Uh, how this all plays out and how Galaxy's Edge goes, I don't know. I'm hoping to be able to get there again in October, I think is when I'm targeting. Um, so I'll take another shot at going there and see if I can get in. Uh, we'll see if they, you know, if they're allowing, you know, annual pass holders in at that point. Sometimes uh, they don't, and sometimes the line just to get in the land is long. So we'll see how it works out. Um, they may require reservations just to get in the land, and I don't know when I'm going. Again, it's based around a lot of factors in my life when I go to the Disney parks, and it's not always easy to say I'm going to go on this day. Some days I can plan it that way if there's something specific that I have want to do, but most of the time it's a lot harder than that, and I can't exactly plan it that way. It just doesn't work out. So we'll see if I can make it work uh, in October. I'll keep you, keep you apprised. Now, on the other hand, while I was there, I was like, ooh, you know what would be cool? If they're running the gondola uh, on the day that I'm there, I'd love to take a ride on it and just give it a yeah, check it out. Now, I know that they have been running it periodically, and they have invited some guests to ride on it at times. But the time that I was there, it wasn't running at all. Figures, right? So I asked around a little bit. Nope, not running today. You know, we weren't planning on putting guests on it today anyway, blah, blah, blah. Oh, well, that's the way it goes. So I drove by it and watched the uh, the, the uh, cables and no cars on it. And I'm like, oh, that's too bad. That would have been fun to do. So instead, I just kind of tooled around a little bit and just had some fun and just, you know, took it in for a little while while I was there. Like I said, just a couple of hours. Didn't do much. Just kind of uh, enjoyed myself. People watched and uh, saw a magical Disney moment. There was a, you know, a husband and wife with their little girl. She was probably about six or seven, I would say. And they had a magical moment. Um you know, she was all dressed up. I guess they they either, I'm not sure if they went to the Bibbidi Bobbidi Boo Boutique or they just dressed her up themselves. But anyway, she was all dressed up. So sweet. Uh, she looked so cute. And uh, the, um, the mom was, you know, uh, getting her something and whatever. And the dad was just, he had this look on his face. He had that look like, oh my God, that's my daughter. And she's so happy right now. And she's so sweet. And just a the classic moment. And then he reaches into his pocket and he gives her a piece of Disney jewelry that she puts on. And he's telling her how special it is and why she, you know, she can wear it to school and this and that and the other thing. It was just so sweet. And she's like, I love you, Daddy, and gives him a big hug. And I was like, aww. It was just such the magical Disney moment. He's just looking at her with these, these adoring eyes. And I'm like, oh, my God, I just want to cry. It's so sweet. Um, you know, I love those moments when they come up. I do see them occasionally. I like to people watch, so I see a lot of that stuff happen. And it was just sweet. You know, it was just one of those great moments that you just love. Um, and that's, to me, one of the most special things that happens is when you have those family moments and those those totally memorable moments of magic that you take away with you. Um, so really cool. And I was, I was glad to see that in a way. Uh, not in a way. I was glad to see that because it's just, you know, those are the great moments in life. Um, you know, I watch my own kids growing up and I think to myself, wow, they're much bigger now, you know, but we still have those magical moments sometimes where we do something and it surprises and delights them. And I love that. It's still, uh, I'm still able to do that sometimes with some of the things that we do. So there you go. That's my take on, uh, on a recent um, sort of <laughs> trip that I took that was an unexpected um, pr- uh, surprise to go, into the, to go into the parks and hang out for a little while. Just happened to work out for me timing-wise. Um, and it was really pretty neat. And I almost made it to Galaxy's Edge, but not quite. So I'll have to keep an eye on that and see if I can make it another time. So I just want to give you that update, tell you what was going on, tell you what I thought, and uh, I guess that's, uh, that's it for now. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Bye now.
Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there, please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading, one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gil. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company. 